Amen. We'll open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please stand with me. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. This is God's Word. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen. You may be seated. The title of this message is Saved to Serve. Saved to Serve. Now, how many of you enjoy a good potluck? Be honest, okay? Some of you are lying right now. You know you enjoy potlucks. It's no secret, right, that your new pastor actually really enjoys potlucks. How many of you knew that about me? Yeah, even during our Q&As, I think I brought it up like 2,000 times, you know? I enjoy potlucks over the years. I think those things are fun. I think that um, they are conducive to just facilitating fellowship amongst people and connectivity, and I've been there where people have met one another for the first time, and then were assimilated into the body of Christ. It's a great mechanism of bringing, for bringing people together. And of course, we've got to be honest, one of the best things about a good potluck is the food, right? Yeah, I love the food. We enjoy food during potlucks. It's fun to fellowship around food. And as you know, for, the, for potlucks to be the best ever, right, everybody needs to contribute to that particular potluck. Each person needs to uh, participate. That's why we have these sign-up sheets, right, that Jennifer McGinnis will send out or somebody else when we have potlucks or in the past other individuals have as well, where you sign up for a main dish or a, a side dish or a complimentary dish or fruit or drinks and ice or whatever, right, and everybody signs up to contribute now, be honest, how many of you have been to a small or big potluck where somebody dropped the ball and they signed up to bring something, especially something critical for that potluck, and they didn't bring it? How many of you have been to those? I have many a time. So one time I went to this one, and it had to be a dude's potluck, okay? It was a men's small group potluck. Had to be the guys, right? Ladies typically are a lot more organized, and they just follow through what they say they're going to be bringing. It had to be a dude's potluck. So everybody signed up, a men's small group, about 21 guys or whatever. And would you believe we were cooking burgers and hot dogs, and one guy signed up to bring the condiments, and guess what? He forgot to bring the condiments, how many of you have had a hamburger, a hot dog with no mayonnaise? How many of you have had one of those? Are they pretty enjoyable? Pfft, my goodness. Those things are nasty, right? How many of you have had a hot dog with no mayonnaise and no mustard or, or no uh, mayonnaise? Or ketchup, rather. We don't enjoy those things, do we? See, for potlucks to be fun and effective and enjoyable, everyone must contribute. Everyone, if you sign up to bring something, hey, come through with what you signed up to bring. Right? Be dependable. Make sure that you, if you sign up to contribute, that you sign up to participate in something like that, that you actually come through with your word. 
That would be really, really bad, right, for a potluck if many of us did that. If next Sunday we plan on this and people sign up and all of that and multiple of you decide, you know what, I'm sure somebody else will think about the drinks. I'm sure somebody else will think about the condiments, right? And you think that somebody else is going to do it and at the end of the day, no one delivers. The best potlucks, brethren, are those where everybody contributes, right? And you know, this is the way it is in Christian ministry. This is the way that it is in the church, right? Where there is a fruitful church, spiritually speaking, where there is effective ministry happening, where there is faithful ministry taking place, many people, if not all, are highly committed participants instead of passive spectators. All are contributors, right? And that's what we want to consider this morning and really reflect and think upon this reality of the fact that we have been saved to serve. If you are a Christian this morning, you have been saved not only to be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, but while you're here on this earth, you are saved to serve. You're called to serve and use your spiritual gifts for the glory of God and for the good of your brethren. This is what we want to consider from this particular passage. And the context is very important as we sort of dive into 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. These Christians, as you know, were experiencing the beginning of opposition, the beginning of persecution for their Christian faith under the infamous Roman dictator by the name of who? Nero. Nero. And there was a real sense, at the time that Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there was a real sense that the end, this could be the end. That the end of all things was near as they were watching these things unfold in opposition and persecution for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Peter writes, he reminds them of a number of things by way of encouragement and by way of exhortation for his fellow brothers and sisters whom he loves. He's a faithful pastor, so he opens up in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, for instance, by reminding them of their great salvation, that regardless of the trials and the sufferings that they are experiencing, they should rejoice in the wonderful salvation that they have in Christ. They should live in the light of that salvation. So as they are suffering and they're experiencing opposition, guess what? You need to suffer well, says Peter. Suffer well and make sure that as far as it depends on you, that you do not suffer for evil doing, but that you suffer for the glory of Christ for the sake of the name of Jesus. Just like Christ did. He suffered for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his Father's kingdom. He also exhorts them to, as far as it depends on them and within God-given parameters, to live in godly, God-fearing submission before the Lord, before in their home life, and in society. He says, don't be, be a submissive Christian within biblical parameters. Make sure that you do not uh, suffer as an evildoer before the governing authorities even. Make sure that you live well and that you rejoice if you're suffering for the sake of Christ. You're blessed, he says. And then, significantly, by the time Peter gets to chapter 4 and verse 7, notice, he reminds them that they need to live eschatologically. That they need to live in the light of the end. With the end in view. You know, a pastor friend of mine often says this, you know, as we live the Christian life, it's not about the here and now, it's about the then and there. I like that. It's not for the believer about the here and now, but about the then and there. In other words, we need to live in the light of eternity. 
in the light of the future that is to come. That is the life of the believer. We live in the light of what is to come when Christ returns, right? Notice how Peter reminds him of this in chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. And brethren, if it was near then, how much more in the present? Yes? The end of all things is near. And so therefore, in the light of the end, Peter says, therefore, verse 7, look there, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of what? Prayer. As you anticipate the end, he says, be a prayer warrior. Be a God-dependent Christian through prayer. Therefore, in the light of the end, look at verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. God has loved you. He has given you salvation. He is for you in Christ, believer. He says, be fervent in your love for one another. That uh, the word fervent there has the idea of the fact that our love should be a stretching kind of love. A love where we, where we are a sacrificial a love that is exercised with a sense of self-abandonment, especially in the light of or when people offend us. Why? Look at verse 8. Because love covers a multitude of sins. That's not speaking about sweeping sin under the rug there or diminishing sin, but about practicing gracious forgiveness toward one another, about not being quick to take things personally, about not growing bitter when we're wronged, and so he says, in the light of the end, be prayerful, be loving and gracious even when wronged. Therefore, look at verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. The idea there is be kind to strangers. Be they people you don't know or people you do know but are not as familiar with. In the light of the end, he says, have a welcoming spirit toward one another. Practice hospitality toward one another. And then, please note, in the light of the fact that the end of all things is near, he tells them in verses 10 through 11, serve one another. Serve one another. Brothers and sisters, living eschatologically, living with the sense that the end is near. And if it was near for them and when Peter wrote in that first century, it is even more near for us now. Living eschatologically and living in the light of the fact that Jesus could return calls upon us to flesh out a kingdom-minded perspective in prayerful, loving, gracious, hospitable service toward one another. All the more diligent we should be in the light of the fact that Christ could return to be an ongoing ministry to one another. This type of relentless and joyful service ought to be true of each of us. And for us as a church, in a growing way. And so to help us, I want us to look at three aspects here of this service. I want us to take note of these. Three aspects of this service to take note of and apply ourselves to this particular morning from this text, okay? As you take notes, write this down. I want to encourage us, first and foremost, I want you to be encouraged by God's provision for service. Be encouraged by God's gracious provision for service. Hey, do you know and understand this morning that God has provided everything pertaining to life and godliness for you as a Christian? Ephesians chapter 1 says that God has given us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And included in there are spiritual gifts for you as a believer so that you will be able to serve Christ from the heart. Our Heavenly Father is so gracious and so good that He's never going to command us to do something that He hasn't equipped us to be able to obey. Yes? This is how gracious He is. 
He has not given us, any of us, the short end of the stick. If you're a Christian this morning, He has graciously provided you with what you need to serve. We find this clearly stated in verse 10, if you notice. Look there in verse 10. As each one has received a special gift. Notice that. God has provided spiritual gifts to each one of us as believers. Each, without exception. Right? Meaning that every believer has been graciously given and equipped with spiritual gifting for service. Without exception, without partiality, for God is not partial to anyone. No one has been left out. None of us can sit here today and say, oh, wait a minute, red flag. I don't know. I think God actually forgot about me as a believer. I don't know. I don't think I'm gifted. This is not the case. He says each one, without exception, has received a special gift. Each of us has been provided with gifting. Notice also that God has provided out of His sheer grace, hasn't He? That's what the word for gift means, by the way. It's the word charisma. We get our word grace from this particular word. The word charis in the Greek means grace. In other words, these are grace gifts. Grace gifts. I love how someone has defined grace. Grace are God's riches at Christ's expense. I love that, don't you? Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. They are undeserved, these gifts, in other words. They are unmerited. We didn't earn them. We didn't ask for them. We don't work for them. We don't manufacture or generate these spiritual gifts on our own. They come from the hand of a gracious God. In fact, later on in verse 10, if you notice, he says that these are part of the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God. In other words, God gives according to the measure of His grace, according to His divine prerogative. No one tells God what to do there, right? These are according to His divine design. Manifold is a word which means diverse or unique. God has gifted each of us, in other words, uniquely. Not all gifts are exactly the same. Each of us brings something much needed to the table. That is why, on the one hand, we should always stay humble and recognize, ultimately, God can use anyone, right? He doesn't need us. On the other hand, if you're walking in humility, recognize no one can bring to the table what God has gifted you to bring to the table at Eastridge. We need you in that sense, within humble parameters, to be using your spiritual gifting, because God has given you this gifting according to His manifold grace. And so these are grace gifts from the hand of a loving God. Brethren, that should keep us humble. That should keep us humble. There is nothing that we have, including these gifts, that has not been provided by the hand of a gracious Heavenly Father. There's nothing innovative or original in any of us. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. That means there is no room for boasting in the church. Whatever God does through you, whether they are speaking gifts or service gifts up front or behind the scenes, all the glory goes to who? To God. There's no room for boasting. These are grace gifts. Gifts were not given to people in the church to create some type of elitism, some kind of hierarchy amongst Christians. Everything that we have, including our spiritual gifts, come from His hand. Thus, we need to repent of pride if we've ever had that in our hearts in the light of, wow, look how fruitful I'm being in the church. Pride has no place in the church. All the glory goes to God. 
I want you to further notice the nature of these gifts which God has graciously provided, okay? The grammar is very significant here. If you look at verse 10, notice that it says, A, in the NASB, a special gift. In the ESV, same thing, just literally a gift. There's no definite article there. The word the, which singles out the, the gift, right? There, it doesn't say the gift. It says a gift. What's the point? There is a sense here that this is speaking of, of a gifting, of a giftedness. In other words, it's not that Christians receive just one gift, but ready, a mixture of gifting. A combination of gifting, a gift set, if you will, a gift package, if you will. You know, my daughter loves to paint, and over the years she's done some wonderful little projects here and there, and I've seen her before using a, a palette, right, made out of wood or plastic or whatever, and on this palette she squeezes different paints, right? And then she begins to mix those paints together and she makes these wonderful different tones of color or whatever for the picture that she is drawing. This is the idea of spiritual gifting. Your spiritual gifting, brother or sister, is a mixture or a combination of various gifts according to the measure of God's grace for the common good of your brothers and sisters. It's a gifting a package of gifts, if you will. Now, what is this gifting? What are spiritual gifts? Are they natural abilities? No. They are not natural abilities. They are not talents. They are not skills that you may have, like you know, playing an instrument or singing or being a good cook, even though we really appreciate you for being a good cook, right? These are talents or skills, and they certainly could relate to your spiritual gift and even complement your spiritual gift, but they are not identical to spiritual gifting. They are just that. They are spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. At conversion, at your new birth, at regeneration, the Holy Spirit indwelt you permanently, right? Raised you from spiritual death to new life. Otherwise, you would have never responded to the gospel. The Spirit of God did that in your heart and did many other things, and continues to minister to you as a third member of the Trinity who has indwelt you. But also the Holy Spirit came with spiritual gifting to reside in you. In, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in the context of spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11, God's Word says this, but one and the same Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, works all of these things, distributing to each believer one individually just as He wills. In other words, the Holy Spirit distributes uniquely as He wills according to His divine prerogative. They are spiritual gifts packaged especially for you by the precious Holy Spirit according to His divine design and prerogative. As such, I love how one pastor defines the spiritual gifting. He says spiritual gifting is any divine, notice divine, capacity or divine endowment that can be used for the benefit of the church. Good basic definition. It's enabled, he adds, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be used for ministry in the church. I love that. What a privilege, brethren. What a privilege. I remember as a baby believer back in 1993, 
thinking about the wonderful reality of God's salvation, of me, a broken, fallen sinner, and, and just being uh, amazed by the, by the wonderful work of Jesus Christ on the cross whereby He forgave me for my sins, right? But then <laughs> I'm meeting with this one brother who was discipling me at the time, and we started talking about this, this thing called spiritual gifts or spiritual gifting, and he began to articulate some of these things for me, and I thought, wow, I can't, it's not, it's, isn't it enough that God has saved me, eternally speaking, from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of the Son of His love? On top of that, you're telling me, I said to this guy, Mark, you're telling me that I actually am spiritually gifted so that I will be able to serve Christ and glorify Him? He says, yes. Whoa, wow. This is the way that our hearts should be moved, brethren. What a privilege. I hope that you are encouraged by the fact that an infinitely holy God and Creator and your Father, if you are in Christ, He not only has commanded you to serve, but be encouraged by the fact that He's graciously provided for you to serve. Amen? Be encouraged by God's gracious provision for service. But don't stop there. Second, I want to exhort you. Write this down. To take heed to God's authoritative pronouncement to serve. Take heed to God's authoritative pronouncement to serve. In other words, God has commanded you, believer, to serve. He has saved you to serve. He has saved you to serve Him. You know, in Matthew 25, read this passage later on today sometime and contemplate its contents there. Matthew 25, there's a sobering parable of the talents that Jesus gave. And he calls, or he tells of this master who went away on a long journey. And he gave talents to three different slaves of his, servants. To one, he gave five talents, if you remember. To the other one, he gave two. To the third one, he gave one talent. One talent, by the way, was the equivalent of 15 years approximately of wages. So he gives them five, two, and one. And the one that had five talents, Jesus says, invested those talents and turned it into a profit of five, doubling up those talents for his master to ten. Remember the one with two? Doubled up those and turned those into four talents. But do you remember the, what the one uh, servant with one talent, what that, that particular servant did? He went and he dug a hole and he buried the one talent in the hole. In other words, he did nothing with what his master had given him and entrusted him with. Nothing. And so when the master returned, he settles account with the three servants. He has words of commendation, right, for the first two servants who invested those talents and doubled up the profit there. Do you remember what he said to the third slave? You savvy, smart slave. I'm so proud of you. Is that what he said? That's not what he said. He said, you wicked and lazy slave, he said. You wicked and lazy slave. You should have at least put my one talent in the bank and at least I would have received what? Interest. Some degree of profit. See, the master had given them talents and he expected investment. He expected fruitful profit from them, didn't he? And he has words of commendation for the two servants who did bring profit to him. And he had strong, sobering words for the slave who did not invest those talents. You know, brethren, we have Christians like this in churches, like the third servant. 
Christians who, who have been entrusted by God with spiritual gifts but are not investing those spiritual gifts. They're not even using their talents and abilities for the sake of the glory of God and the good of their brethren. We have Christians in churches who have a very low regard for the glory of God and, of, and lack love for their brethren and they don't use their gifts. Like that third servant. There are Christians who are the proverbial benchwarmers, right? And they're not benchwarmers just because they've been told to sit on the bench. They're benchwarmers because they want, it, they want to be low status quo. They don't want any expectations put on them. They don't want anyone to expect more than the bare minimum, than the status quo. They, there are Christians who are AWOL, who have abandoned and deserted their spiritual post in the church. Maybe some of you this morning are there. What would God have to say to you if this is you? Look at the text in verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, ready? Employ it. Right? The ESV translates it, use it. Use it. Employ it. Exercise your gifting. I love that translation, employ it. What do we mean that someone is employed? That they have a job to do, yes? They have a job to do. And they need to exercise their energies and their time, give their time to accomplish that particular job. So he says, put it to use. Invest your gifts. And recall the context here. It's in the light of the fact that the end of all things is near. In the light of that, having an eschatological perspective, a kingdom-minded perspective, he says, invest. Don't be passive. Don't be lethargic. Don't be complacent. Don't be expecting others to step in and do for you what you are able to do. And God has graciously provided and equipped you to do. You exercise your spiritual gifts. Invest for the sake of the kingdom. In the light of the end of all things. Get to work, Christian soldiers. This is Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a faithful, loving pastor, essentially giving them a loving kick in the rear, saying, hey, the end is near. In the light of that, serve. Exercise your spiritual gifts for the sake of God's glory, as we're going to see in the good of your brethren. Get to work, Christian soldiers. Employ your gifts. Invest. Someone has insightfully written this. Only two things are forever. The Word of God and the souls of people. Two things are forever. The Word of God and the souls of people, right? Therefore, that, if that's true, invest your God-given gifts into the kingdom of God, into the souls of those who will live forever. It's not a waste, is it? It's not a waste, brethren. Listen, we are to employ our God-given gifts diligently, Write that down as a sub-point there. Diligently. He says, employ it in, notice, serving one another. And that verb there, serving one another, is a present tense participle verb, meaning continually, characteristically, habitually, right? In other words, present tense, we should be characterized by service. It should be part of our DNA, part of our culture, collectively as a church and for you as an individual. Because each one has been graciously gifted, yes? Each one of us is to diligently employ our gifting. But Pastor Tempest, I've been burned. Yep, true that. Me too. 
Pastor Kempis, you know, um, my investment is not always reciprocated. Uh-huh, yep, preach it. Well, Pastor Kempis, I often feel like I'm the only one committed. I often feel like I'm the only one endeavoring to serve him. Preach. Yes. Many a time, I can tell you that's been my experience, whether by perception or reality. I can hear those excuses, but they are not valid excuses, brethren. They are not. This is why I love passages like 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Right In light of the resurrection, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, ready for this, that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's in the context of the risen, exalted Christ. And in light of the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you believer will be raised from the dead. Therefore, don't lose heart. Don't give up. It's worth it. Christ is worth it. And his people are absolutely worth it. Set your eyes on the exalted Christ, tired believer. Never give up. Never give up. For the, do this for the sake of the kingdom. That's comforting, isn't it? Listen, brethren, I just want to be faithful to what God has called me to do and let the chips fall where they fall. Amen? That should be our hearts. Hey, listen, I'm not going to focus on what others are not doing. I'm not going to focus on what others are, how they're dropping the ball. I'm going to simply be faithful within my limits and my time parameters and where God has me in this season of life, and I am going to just be faithful. Let the chips fall where they fall. Amen? And maybe others will follow the example. You'd be amazed. You just focus on what you need to do. Isn't that how you shepherded your kids growing up? Right? Three or four little ones running around. Well, he's not doing this, right, when they're doing their chores. What do you typically say? You're going to address the other in private. What will we say to our one that's complaining? Hey, you just focus on yourself. Be faithful. We told you to do something. You focus on what you need to be doing, and maybe your brother will see and he'll follow your example. Yes, especially if they were older, we would do that. Same thing in the church. Be faithful. We need to employ our gifts diligently and faithfully. Look at verse 10. Faithfully as good stewards, he says. Notice that? We are to employ our gifts as good stewards. Stewards translates a Greek word which means a household manager. A household manager. My wife and I, for years, even through seminary or cemetery, as I often uh, say because of all the suffering involved, right? Where they kill these guys and us, um, figuratively speaking. For all of those years, we managed apartment buildings. And, you know, we we were um, accountable to the owner of those buildings uh, to handle the affairs of that particular owner in the right way, to collect rents, right, to make sure that work requests were followed faithfully and to make sure that as we got, you know, quotes from other vendors that they, that they weren't going to take the owner for all he was worth, right? He trusted us. He trusted us. We were not the owners, but we were accountable as stewards of those particular properties. We were caretakers of those particular properties. That's the sense here, brethren, we are household managers of God's property. He's the owner and we are the servants. Amen? And the master owner determines the use of those gifts. Those gifts are to be used for the benefit of your brothers and sisters in Christ for the common good, as 1 Corinthians 12 says. For the common good. After speaking on this topic once, Someone came up to me after the service, as I'm, I typically do, just stand in the front of the pulpit and people are coming up and asking questions. And this guy came up to me very annoyed. He says, I get you. 
But I don't know anyone anything in this church. Just like that. Maybe he didn't yell, right? But he was pretty expressive. And I looked at this guy, this fleshly guy, and I go, first of all, that's not the way a Christian speaks. Are you one? He says, I am one. I said, okay, secondly, you do owe your brethren. You do owe them. You are indebted to your brothers and sisters in Christ in the light of what Christ has done for you. Yes? Romans chapter 13, verse 8 says that. Owe nothing to anyone except, ready, to love one another. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. I love that. And brethren, we show love to one another by serving one another. People talk about freedom, freedom. I'm free in Christ, free in Christ. Ready for this? Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You want to know what you're free to do, Christian? You are free to do everything that is for the glory of God and for the good of your brethren, including and at the forefront Christian service. You're free to minister to others. That's what you're free to do. And so we need to employ our gifts diligently, faithfully, and self-sacrificially. Notice the text. He says, employ it in serving one another, right? This is selfless service, others-oriented service. It's for the benefit of others. You do not serve Christ to see what you get out of things, even though I'm sure you would agree that when we're walking by the Spirit and we're serving Christ over the years, don't you feel a sense of sanctified fulfillment that you're actually living out and serving, uh, serving others the way that you are faithfully? There's a sense of joy, isn't there? So in that sense, we do benefit that, knowing that we're glorifying our Father and that our brethren are being blessed, that we're blessing them with our service. That's good. But at the end of the day, it's for the benefit of others. I love that word there, serving, serving one another. We get our word for deacon from this word, which means a servant. And what, what are servants? Servants are those who, who will, uh, give themselves self-sacrificially, relentlessly for the good of other people. Yes? This is the horizontal, if you will, purpose of employing our God-given gifts. It's for the self-sacrificial benefit of, and the good of other people. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. But to each one is given, he says, the manifestation of the Spirit, ready, for the common good. So we should always be asking ourselves, am I using the gifts that the Spirit of God has given me for the common good? Is what I'm doing for the benefit of others, or am I doing it to get some kind of promotion within the context of the church? What is it? Am I doing it for the intrinsic benefit of others, or is there something in it for me and that's why I'm doing it? 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So also you, believer, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. He says, don't just be about the edification of the church. Abound in this. Edification means to build up. We should always be asking ourselves the question, how is my spiritual gifting being used to edify others in the body of Christ, to build them up in Christ so that Jesus would be formed in them? that they would become more and more like, my, like Christ. How might I maximize my spiritual gifting? Not for the sake of self-promotion or self-fulfillment, but so that others might be blessed as I exercise the spiritual gifts that God has given me. 
Listen, brethren, spiritual gifts are not for the purpose of fanning our self-esteem, making ourselves feel significant, or for procuring for us a special elite position in the church. If that is your heart, you need to repent of that this morning. Confess that to the Lord and be renewed in the spirit of your mind to say, Lord, I want to do things for your glory and for the good of my brethren. Help me. Help me to do things from a worshipful, joyful spirit rather than a complaining one or a self-promoting one. Spiritual gifts are to be exercised self-sacrificially for the benefit of, of others. And listen, brethren, where a church abounds in service and in servants, plural, there is a unified church. Where this type of mentality and culture of service-orientedness, where that abounds, there is a mature Christ-like church. Good litmus test for us, isn't it? How abounding is our edification by way of service amongst one another? How much are we meeting the needs of, of others informally behind the scenes and formally when needs are put forward? How many of us are jumping and saying, hey, I don't, I don't even know if that's even my spiritual gifting, but I'm here, I'm here to serve. How can I serve? That says something about our maturity as a church and how Christ-like we are. And so we must take heed to God's authoritative pronouncement to serve. We must be obedient to his command of using our God-given spiritual gifts for the good of the body of Christ. So let me ask you this morning, are you exercising your spiritual gifts in the church, brother or sister? Are you walking in obedience to his orders to you? Remember, only two things are eternal, the word of God and the souls of people. Is it worth it for us to give ourselves relentlessly and self-sacrificially then for people? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so I want you to be encouraged by God's gracious provision for service. Take heed to God's authoritative pronouncement to serve. But finally, write this down. We need to be motivated by God's compelling purpose for service. Be motivated by God's compelling purpose for service. Please look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Right? In other words, if you're going to be speaking, make sure that you're speaking God's word. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. I love what he says there. Recognize that as you serve, he says, God is not only the one who has graciously gifted you, but he also provides you with the enabling strength to be able to exhaustively work for him. Yes? Work according to his strength, for apart from him you can do nothing. We need to be God-dependent Christians. Note here that he also alludes to two categories of gifts or of gifting, doesn't he? Here in this particular text, he mentions speaking gifts and service gifts, two general categories. He's not getting into the technicalities or, and all of that or the, or the particular gifts, but there are five texts in the New Testament where spiritual gifts are outlined, right? We're not going to do a quiz Right now, see who can name all five of those. But they are 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 30, Romans 12, 6 through 8, Ephesians 4, 11 and following, where apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, it says, were appointed, right? And then this particular passage, 5, 
1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. And if you take all of those texts put together, we learn that in the New Testament, uh, spiritual gifts primarily fell under two overarching categories, if you will. Two overarching categories. Sign gifts and service gifts. Sign gifts and service gifts. Sign gifts were temporary in nature. Mark it down. They weren't designed to be permanent. Their function, sign gifts, was, were temporary for a specific time, for a unique time when the church was birthed. And even when Jesus was in, in the Gospels, right, doing miracles and healings and so forth, they were attesting miracles. Miracles that authenticated the message that he was proclaiming, that indeed they had, that those things validated the fact that he was indeed, as he said, the Son of God. They were attesting miracles. They were signs that were confirming the testimony or witness of Jesus and then eventually the, the apostles. These were, of course, prevalent in the early church, but then as the, as the church was established, those sign or miraculous gifts, brethren, ceased and so you have miracles, right, as they appear in the New Testament, where Christ did signs and wonders and miracles of all kinds. The, Paul and the apostles did these, and they were even considered those signs to be signs of a true apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 speaks about this, right? They were attesting miracles designed to authenticate a message. There were also gifts of healing, gifts of healing, where Jesus for a time gave his apostles and other followers the ability to heal in a particular way. But if you've noticed, those healing miracles were instantaneous, they were immediate, they were complete, they were permanent, and they were definitive. Is that what you see to practice today? No. This hocus-pocus stuff that we see in certain contexts, that's not what you see in the New Testament at all. And there were tongues and the ability to interpret tongues. And these were known languages, previously unknown to the speaker, who were empowered to speak that language, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Yes, known languages. Others in the early church were given the ability to interpret those particular tongues. According to 1 Corinthians 14, 27, 28. So all of these were under the general category of, of sign gifts. Sign gifts. We don't believe that these sign gifts are operative anymore. We believe that now with the canon of Scripture complete, there is no longer a need for attesting or authenticating sign gifts. And thus, if you want to ask the theological position of this church, and one of the reasons why I came to this church even as we wrestled through doctrine together is that we are what you call cessationists here. We are cessationists which means that we don't believe that the market sign gifts as they were exercised in the New Testament are operative in the same way today. And connected to this, might I add, we don't believe in present-day prophets. We don't believe that they exist anymore. We don't believe in present-day apostles with a capital A, as Jesus, right, called apostles to himself and gave them that particular title. These individuals, um, there aren't individuals today called prophets and apostles who receive new revelation from God. No, that's ended. The end of Ephesians chapter 2 says that they were part of the foundation, the apostles and prophets. But now that this wonderful structure called the church continues to grow, they were part of the foundation and Jesus was the cornerstone. But there aren't any more apostles and prophets today. Amen? That's, those offices have ceased. So that's a related issue there. Now, before you throw up a red flag, right? 
You say, well, does that mean that we don't believe in that God does miracles today? No. That's a misrepresentation of cessationism. We do believe that God does miracles. Amen? I've lived and pastored through situations where God has done amazing. By the way, he does miracles every single day. You know how? He keeps you alive every single day. When you wake up and you breathe and you become conscious of your existence, guess what? That is a miracle of God. Life. You being born again is a miracle of God. He does miracles every day. Every day. Otherwise, we drop dead. It doesn't mean that we don't believe God can still heal people. He certainly does. It doesn't, doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for someone to get better or even for healing to take place. God does heal, and we should pray for people along those lines, but we should always say, if the Lord wills, yes? James chapter 4, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Because we don't know, but we should pray for that. Not demanding that from God, but saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. If you could bring healing to this brother or sister, give them relief from their physical pain, Lord, that they would be able to serve you more, more effectively. That's how I pray for those who are struggling with physical illnesses. And so we do believe that God does miracles, heals, and we should even pray for those things. But as you look at so much, brethren, of what is being practiced today in various so-called circles and contexts, it's nothing remotely close to what we see in the early church in the New Testament at all. And so we need to be careful and be discerning. That's sign gifts. The other broad category are what we call service gifts. Service gifts. And these are still in effect today, though there is some debate, right? And we can't be overly dogmatic about this. There's some debate as to how many of these are operative and what they look like and how they flesh themselves out, etc. For example, we can talk about prophecy, okay? And I'm not talking about prophecy uh, referring to foretelling of the future, right? Mark it, pay attention. This is not foretelling of the future, but this is prophecy in the sense of foretelling of the already written message of God. Get the difference? Which is the revealed, right? Revela- the revealed word of God here, the inspired scriptures, rightly interpreted, rightly applied. It's foretelling of the message of God. Gifted teachers and preachers in the church have this particular gift. In so long as they are foretelling the scripture, rightly interpreted and applied as originally given, taking original intent in mind. False teachers don't do this. What do they do? They twist Scripture. They claim new revelation, again, calling themselves the apostle such and such or prophet such and such. No, that's where so much confusion exists and so much deception in evangelical circles. This gift strictly means to tell forth, right? Tell forth the word of God. It's what 1 Thessalonians 5.20 refers to as prophetic utterance. Do not despise prophetic utterance, says Paul to the Thessalonians. So it's forth telling, telling forth the word of God. And so there is a gift of teaching, right? Complementing this. The ability to help people understand the word as originally intended is the teaching gift and apply it. And on top of that, to be able to protect doctrine and to defend it. Every elder or pastor overseer, same office in the church, is to be able to articulate regularly and fruitfully over a period of time and give evidence of that and be able to protect doctrine. Every elder, pastor, overseer should have the teaching gift both by way of proclamation, dispensing the truth, and protecting the doctrine of the church. That's why we, we guard the gate, right, with regards to eldership in the church, and we must move it forward. 
Because if we put forward elders who cannot teach and who cannot dispense the word, you will not be edified and God will not be glorified, right? There's the gift of faith. The gift of faith. All of us are called to be people of faith, similar to all of these gifts. But this gift shows itself in particular in Christians who it seems no matter what trial or obstacle they're going through, they trust God. Have you met those? I know some of you in here are people of faith. You're always talking about the promises of God. You're always rejoicing in the midst of your trials. You're always being optimistic. You're a person of faith. There's the gift of wisdom, applied knowledge, the ability to take what you know from the word, apply it to your life in a skillful way, and help others do the same. All of us are called to be people of wisdom and knowledge, as we're going to say right now, but there are people who have this extra measure of spiritual endowment in these areas, and we can tell right over a period of time. It's identifiable kind of stuff. People with knowledge, the ability to understand Scripture and bring clarity to Scripture. Oftentimes this gift of knowledge comes along with the gift of teaching, right? There's the gift of discernment. Discernment, which is the ability to distinguish what is true from what is error. And not only that, the ability to distinguish what is good from what is best. People who know the Word of God well and they know where the dangers lurk in life. And complementing that discernment gift, they have had experiences where they know they're, they are street savvy, if you want to put it that way, right? They know where the dangers lurk. They're discerning people. But that's first and foremost because they know the word. Mercy, there's the gift of mercy, which is the ability to show deep compassion and mercy towards those who are hurting spiritually, physically, or emotionally. These folks seem to always be tuned in on the lookout for distressed people physically, emotionally, spiritually, wanting to show mercy, especially in the area of physical kindness. There's the gift of exhortation, which is the ability to motivate and encourage and inspire others. If you are a biblical counselor, formally or informally, you should have that gift of exhortation, right? Where you're getting to know the word, but you're also merciful and compassionate because you want to also exegete the heart of someone and understand where they're at relationally. Yes, both. There's the gift of giving. Everyone should be giving in the church in a calculated, consistent, measured manner. But there are people who especially have this spiritual endowment where they just love extra, above and beyond. They love to just give. They excel at responding to the needs of the church. They love to give gifts of a material or physical nature. They find joy in doing this. And there's the gift of administration or leadership, or often it's, t- it's uh, referred to as the gift of piloting in the church. This is the ability to lead or to administrate or to coordinate or to provide oversight. These are your visionary type of people. Vision meaning from the Word of God, right? Not this little dream that we had, right? My vision for the church is this. It's the Word of God. The gift of piloting, leadership. Seeing the big picture and giving clear direction. There's the gift of helps. The gift of helps, which is the ability to come alongside of others who are hurting, who need to be helped in a particular area. Servants, deacons are these types of people, people who love to just help behind the scenes. They, they want no attention, no bells or whistles, no credit, no popularity. I just want to meet needs, and that is the sense of fulfillment that I get and the joy before the Lord, just to know that I cared for you, brother and sister. And there's the gift of service, closely related to the previous. All of us should be serving But here are people who just have this relentless approach to life. They're always serving, meeting physical needs in the church by way of food and maintenance and all of that. Whatever is needed, they are there to meet that need, right? We've seen them. We know them, right? Some of these folks. 
Those are just a sampling, brethren, of service gifts in the church. There are others, or a mixture, or a combination of these in particular. But don't you love how God never asks us to do anything that He will not provide us the ability to do? Wow. He is a, a gracious God, isn't He? I've told you before, that's, those are, good employers do this. Good employers that you long to work for and you're joyful under their, their um, uh, particular company are employers who not only communicate expectations, but they equip you to do the work, yes? To accomplish the tasks. Our Heavenly Father is the greatest at that. Now, people have asked me over the years, well, how do you know, Pastor Kempis? How do you know your spiritual gifting? And I always tell them, ready? Just get involved doing something. There's a book that someone wrote called Just Do Something. I like that. Some believers sit around, well, I don't know. You know, I've had 18 meetings already, and I still don't know what my spiritual gifts are, and I'm just not going to do anything. You met them? I have as a pastor over the years. Just do something. Meet some informal needs. Be tuned in whenever Jennifer sends out uh, some kind of announcement on Realm or one of the other pastors or elders posts something or someone in the church posts a need. Be tuned into those. Be tuned into the announcements on Sunday mornings. Wow, we have this need or that need for volunteers, right? There's always a vetting process and all of that. But listen, go out and make sure that you prayerfully communicate the fact that you would like maybe to potentially to be considered in serving in that area. Do something, get active, get involved in a small group, serving in some capacity where there's a need, right? Informal, formal. Become a member and get plugged into the life of the church. Get involved, actively participate. And listen, as you do, people around you over time and testing will be the ones who will be affirming you and encouraging you in what you're doing, right? Boy, every time that you do that behind the scenes, I'm so encouraged. Thank you for doing that. You're always meeting needs like that. Thank you. Boy, brother or sister, every time that you teach, ladies, when you, uh, some teacher lady gets up and teaches the other ladies, we're so encouraged whenever you get up and do that, sister. We're so edified. Let's get you doing that more, right? Or other men who teach in the context of the church. Boy, I'm so encouraged. Over a period of time, there's fruitfulness coming from that. I'm so convicted of my sin, and I'm so encouraged to come more and more and be, live more dependent upon the cross of Christ, right? Over time, we affirm those gifts as a body of believers, in the context of the church. And again, people are not helping you, uh, give, making you anything. People are simply affirming what God has already gifted you to do over time in testing. Yes, we've all experienced that to some extent or another. But in all of this, brethren, what is the ultimate motivation for service? We've already talked about the horizontal motivation, right? The good of others. We don't serve for personal accolades, for procuring a position or for personal pride. We do it for the benefit and the good of others. But what's the even greater motivation? Look at verse 11. Look there in verse 11. So that in all things, and in this context again, he's speaking of all of your service, the use of your gifts, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Peter agrees. I love how he ends, right? That we're reminded there that the giver of the gifts receives the glory. Yes? The giver of the gifts receives the glory. So loving service is for the good of others and for God's glory. Those are the two chief motivations for us exercising our spiritual gifts in the church. You know, I've shared with you that I've had the undeserved privilege and blessing of traveling a lot over the years. 
That's a, a blessing from the Lord and part of what shaped me as an individual by His grace. And I love many things, brothers and sisters, about those Christians in foreign countries that I've met and I continue to keep in touch with. There's so many things that I've learned from them. They've taught me so much, and some of them are my biggest heroes. They've taught me the, the importance of suffering well. They're people of, of faith, people who really, really cling to the promises of God in some of these countries. Brethren of made of flesh and blood just like you and I, but boy, boy, they really seek to glorify God. You know what's one of the greatest things that I appreciate about them? Is the servant's heart of many of our brethren. They have a servant's heart. It's like you get there for a conference or whatever, and it's like, whatever you need, Brother Kempis, whatever you need. Hey, how could we, what kind of food would you like us to serve you? Uh, well, is, is there a particular drink that you like? It's like, really, not even anybody in America asks us that, right? But they're, they're so conscientious of the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're relentless at this. They're like, they're just persistent, right? Almost to the point where you feel uncomfortable asking for anything. They're so mindful of this. And in one particular um, country, the brethren there, you know what, how they refer to themselves to each other most commonly? They refer to each other as servant. Servant. Siervo. Servant. That's how they, they, they readily address each other that way. Servant, siervo. And I remember initially asking one brother, saying, brother, uh, tell me a little bit about that. I know that I should know this, but why is it that so commonly everybody refers to each other that way? Siervo or servant. And you know what he said to me? Easy, easy answer, Pastor Kempis. He said, Mark 10.45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whose words were those? The words of Jesus. He says, there you go. I was satisfied with that answer, brethren. Right? To be a servant is to be Christ-like. And I pray that we would be a church that would continue to grow all the more in fostering a culture and an atmosphere here at EBC of loving service. Amen? Loving, joyful, Christ-exalting service. Amen? As my brother comes up and leads us in a closing song, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the precious reminder that we need to be people who are serving, following the example of Christ. And help us to do so, Lord, not in a drudgerous way, not in a duty-driven manner, but out of delight. Out of delight. In the light of the fact that Christ has served us all the way to the cross, paying for our sins, rising from the dead. He lives to be our high priest. Lord, we have so much to be grateful for. We are such blessed, privileged people. Help us to live exuberantly in the light of that and to be about loving, grateful, joyful service for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.